0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, The Voice of One Crying. It's based upon the lectionary readings for December 8th, 2019, the second Sunday in Advent. It is the second Sunday of Advent, which means it's time to brace ourselves for John the Baptist. Dressed in camel's hair and fueled by locusts, the curmudgeonly prophet raises his voice and lets us have it. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits worthy of repentance. If you're looking for a soft, pillowy entry into the season before Christmas, John isn't going to provide it. There's nothing gentle or saccharine about him. You brood of vipers, repent, wake up, bear fruit. The Gospel of Matthew makes a point of telling us that John both appears and cries out in the wilderness, This is where the crowds gather to hear him, in a landscape that is desolate and barren. Why the wilderness? Why the lonely desert for our advent reflections? If you have any experience with real estate, you know the mantra, location, location, location. Location is key. The place where we stand, the terrain we occupy, the space from which we speak. These things matter. I've never seen John the Baptist featured on an Advent calendar or Christmas greeting card, but all four Gospels place him front and center in Jesus' origin story. John's gaunt austerity is the only gateway we have to the swaddling clothes, angels' wings, and fleecy lambs we hold dear each December. As baffling as it may seem, the holy drama of the season depends on the disheveled baptizer's opening act. So again, why the wilderness? Why must Advent begin? in the wilderness. For starters, because the wilderness is a place of vulnerability, risk, and powerlessness. In the wilderness, we have no safety net, no plan B, no rainy day savings account, no quick fix. In the wilderness, life is raw and unsettled and our illusions of self-sufficiency shatter fast. To locate ourselves at the outskirts of security and power is to confess our neediness in the starkest terms. In the wilderness, we have no choice but to wait and watch as if our lives depend on God showing up, because they do. And it's into such an environment, an environment so far removed from safety as to make safety laughable, that the word of God comes. But the Gospel of Matthew goes on. Not only is the wilderness a place that exposes our need for God, it's a place that calls us to repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near Jesus Christ to those who seek him out. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we read that crowds stream into the wilderness to heed John's call. In other words, they leave the lives they know best and venture into the unknown to save their hearts through repentance. Something about the wilderness brings people to their knees. For us 21st century Christians, though, sin and repentance are loaded words we try to avoid. Many of us, particularly those of us who grew up in fundamentalist circles, dislike the word sin. We associate it with shame guilt, and condemnation. Many of us also distrust the word because we've seen how easily it can be manipulated to justify one moralistic agenda over another. And yet, Advent begins with an honest, wilderness-style reckoning with sin. We can't get to the manger unless we go through John, and John is all about repentance. Is it possible that this might become an occasion for relief Maybe if we can get past our baggage and follow John out into the wilderness, we will find comfort in the fact that something more profound and deep is at stake in our lives than, I make mistakes sometimes, or I've got some issues. What is sin, really? Growing up, I was taught that sin is breaking God's laws, or missing the mark as an archer misses his target, or committing immoral acts. These definitions aren't wrong, but they're incomplete. They don't go far enough. Sin, at its heart, is a refusal to become fully human. It's anything that interferes with the opening up of our whole hearts to God, to others, to creation, and to ourselves. Sin is estrangement, disconnection, sterility, disharmony. It's the sludge that slows us down, that says, quit, stop trying, give up. Change is impossible. Sin is apathy, carelessness, a frightened resistance to an engaged life. Sin is the opposite of creativity, the opposite of abundance, the opposite of flourishing. Sin is a walking death, and it is easier to spot, name, and confess a walking death in the wilderness than it is anywhere else. John underscores his message of repentance with a harrowing description of the coming Messiah. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his widowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Are you squirming yet? How is this good news, this portrait of a Jesus who judges, sorts, and burns us? I wonder if we squirm because we misconstrue the meaning of judgment. I tend to equate judgment with condemnation, but in fact, to judge something is to see it clearly, to know it as it truly is. In my dictionary, synonyms for judgment include discernment, acuity, sharpness, perception. What if John is saying that the Messiah who is coming really sees us, that he knows us at our very core? Maybe the winnowing fork is an instrument of deep love, patiently wielded by the one who discerns in us rich harvests still hidden by chaff. Maybe it's in offering God every particular of our lives that we give him permission to clear us, to separate all that's destructive from all that is good, beautiful, and worthy. Finally, Matthew suggests that the wilderness is a place where we can see the landscape whole and participate in God's great work of leveling inequality and oppression. Prepare the way of the Lord, John cries, quoting the prophet Isaiah. Make his paths straight. Unless we're in the wilderness, it's hard to see our own privilege, and even harder to imagine giving it up. No one standing on a top wants the mountain flattened. When we're wandering in the wilderness and immense barren landscapes stretch out before us in every direction, we're able to see what privileged locations obscure. Suddenly, we feel the rough places beneath our feet. We experience what it's like to struggle down twisty, crooked paths. We glimpse arrogance in the mountains and desolation in the valleys, and we begin to dream God's dream of a wholly reimagined landscape. A landscape so smooth and straight and enables all flesh to see the salvation of God. Where are you located during this Advent season? How close are you to security and power, and how open are you to risking the wilderness to hear a word from God? What might repentance look like for you here and now? Where is God leveling the ground you stand on, and what will it take for you to participate in that uncomfortable but essential work? Location, location, location. John the Baptist appears in the wilderness, and people stream to him there, hungry and ready. May we stream there, too. Like John, may we become brave voices in hard places, preparing the way of the Lord. For books this week, Dan reviews The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California by Mark Arax. Since Mark Arax was born into a third generation of Armenian farmers in Fresno, California's population has quadrupled to 40 million people. No wonder that for the title of his previous book, he borrowed a phrase from Theodore Roosevelt who famously said, "When I am in California, I am not in the West. I am west of the West." That is California is not just a state, it's a place writes Richard Rayner of the L.A. Times, where, quote, "...experience and social experiment happen in ways that are both unto themselves and constantly surprising." Nowhere is that more true than with what Arax calls the most effective of California's elixirs, water. Water from the snow melts flowing down Mount Shasta from the north and the Sierras from the east. Water from thousands of wells drilled into ancient aquifers and pumped to the surface— water from rivers that have been rerouted, water from man-made reservoirs and from a vast network of complicated plumbing, 700 miles of canals, plus ditches, dams, levees, and pipes, water controlled by state and federal agencies, bought and sold by multinational conglomerates, and even stolen from one's neighbor. And in the right season, water from rainfall. California's many manipulations of water have been nothing less than the greatest human alteration of a physical environment in history. And none of it has been sufficient for California's agricultural appetites, especially in the 450-mile stretch of the Central Valley. About 80% of California's water goes to agriculture. The message of Araxa's nuanced book is simple. California's complicated love affair with water is unsustainable. Already there are widespread problems with subsistence Subsidence, that is, land that is sinking as much as 30 feet in 50 years, the poisoning of groundwater by fertilizers, suburbs that demand water where it does not exist, urban centers like L.A. and San Diego that have no independent water of their own. There are many actors in this 150-year-old saga. Arax's sprawling and meticulously researched book lets everyone have their say. Billionaire farmers who live in Beverly Hills, environmentalists, multi-generational farming families like his own, state and federal officials, scientists, water directors, the Mexican workers, without him none of the profits would be possible. It might be best to leave the misunderstandings right there, he writes, and let each tribe preach its sermon, creed, and ranch to its own, for no book, long or short, could ever hope to bring peace to California's water wars. But one thing remains certain. California's attempted negation of nature cannot continue at its current pace. For Movies This Week, Dan reviews Rocket Man. The most important thing to know about this biopic about Reginald Kenneth Dwight, born 1947, Sir Elton John, is that it was produced by his husband, David Furnish, a filmmaker, and that John himself was one of the executive producers. We can imagine, then, that every last detail on the film has John's seal of approval, director Dexter Fletcher, the script by Lee Hall, the soundtrack and its arrangements of 22 of John's hits, the casting, the choreography, the cinematography, the production design, the editing, etc. I especially like the mixed genres of straightforward narrative, musical, documentary, and magical realism. In the first minute of the movie, John, dressed in a flamboyant orange devil suit with huge wings and horns, walks into an AA meeting of circled chairs and announces... My name is Elton, and I'm an alcoholic, a cocaine addict, and a sex addict. I'm bulimic. I also have problems with shopping. By repeatedly cutting back to this first scene, it's made clear that this is John's story of redemption, not just from substance abuses, but from the wounds of an emotionally distant nuclear family that did not know how to love a young gay child who was also a musical prodigy, aggravated by global fame, money, debauchery, and corruption when he was only 25. The movie ends in that same AA circle with the appearances of all the key players in his life and John making his peace about his personal identity. And thank God he survived. He and his lifelong lyricist Bernie Taupin produced 30 albums and 300 million records. A note at the end of the movie says that John has been sober for over 28 years and that he has raised $450 for his HIV-AIDS foundation. This film premiered at the 2019 Cannes Film Festival. And lastly, for poems for the second Sunday of Advent, The House of Christmas by G.K. Chesterton. There fared a mother driven forth out of an inn to Rome. In the place where she was homeless, all men are at home. The crazy stable close at hand, with shaking timber and shifting sand, grew a stronger thing to abide and stand than the square stones of Rome. For men are homesick in their homes and strangers under the sun and they lay on their heads in a foreign land whenever the day is done. Here we have battle and blazing eyes and chance and honor and high surprise but our homes are under miraculous skies where the Yule tale was begun. A child in a foul stable where the beasts feed and roam only where he was homeless are you and I at home. We have hands at fashion and heads at know, but our hearts are lost. How long ago, in a place no chart nor ship can show, under the sky's dome. This world is wild as an old wives' tale, and strange the plain things are, and earth is enough and the air is enough for our wonder and our war. But our rest is as far as the fire-drake swings, and our peace is put in impossible things, where clashed and thundered unthinkable wings round an incredible star. To an open house in the evening, home shall men come, to an older place in Eden and a taller town than Rome, to the end of the way of the wandering star, to the things that cannot be and that are, to the place where God was homeless and all men are at home. Thank you for joining us at JourneyWithJesus.net for December 8th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.